I'm Tom Williams. Today on the program, Utah writer uh, Maximilian Werner. He answers the questions, how did you choose your home? What side of the bed did you sleep on? Uh, What do you have in common with a spider? In his new book, Evolved, Chronicles of a Pleistocene Mind, Maximilian Werner takes us on a journey into the mysteries of the natural world just outside his own front door, from a close examination of the web-building behaviors of spiders in his yard to an investigation of a once-inhabited nearby cave. Maximilian Werner considers how we have evolved to make certain decisions and invites us to explore our own connections to the world and lives around us. Maximilian Werner, Evolved, Chronicles of a Pleistocene Mind, on Access Utah, following the news. Support for Access Utah comes from Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. How did you choose your home? What side of the bed do you sleep on? What do you have in common with a spider? In his new book, Evolved, Chronicles of a Pleistocene Mind, Utah writer Maximilian Werner takes us on a journey into the mysteries of the natural world just outside his own front door. From a close examination of the web-building behavior of spiders in his yard to an investigation of a once-inhabited nearby cave, Maximilian Werner considers how we have evolved to make certain decisions and invites us to explore our own connections to the world and lives around us. He writes, I believe we are never more informed, fulfilled, and human than when we attend to our complex, wonderful, and sometimes troubling nature, particularly as it relates to the physical world. Maximilian Werner is author of several previous books, including Gravity Hill. We talked to him on Access Utah about that, Crooked Creek, another book. And he teaches writing at the University of Utah. Maximilian Werner, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I wonder if we could uh, start out by having you uh, read uh, a page from early in the book, uh, page, okay. page four. Uh, this is from your uh, introduction, and it uh, sets up a, a lot of the issues that you grapple with uh, in the book. should set this up by, by saying you talk about uh, uh, previous page, you're, you're, you were troubled in a way by the extreme popularity of the X-Files. That, uh, uh, you know, the, tr- the truth yeah. is the truth is out there, and you say that, <laughs> you know, it may be, but uh, there's a lot of truth here as well and uh, then you say fortunately our scientific interests are many and then you then you go on to uh, to so maybe you could just read that uh, th- that page the entire page is that the one that begins having a robust sense of mystery uh this is off, let's see often however we seem paralyzed by the world's grandeur and mystery oh okay so begin there okay yes and then read down to what on earth uh, is stopping us uh yes okay Often, however, we seem paralyzed by the world's grandeur and mystery. Perhaps it is enough that we simply have these experiences of awe and wonder. Who cares what, if anything, lies behind them? Why is it important that we know? Given our undeniable emergence from connection to independence on the environment, I think we are wise to ask these kinds of questions. Having a robust sense of mystery is natural and necessary to realizing our potential. But when it distances us from the real challenges we face, is debilitating and destructive. This seems especially true when it comes to unassailable mysteries, or those mysteries in which we readily believe, but for which we have no evidence or data, uh, for which we have no evidence or data are not available. 
Under these circumstances, enlightened solutions to our personal and collective struggles don't come easily, if at all. Our belief in subjective truth may be personally fulfilling as far as our own definitions are concerned, but the belief may isolate us from other dimensions of ourselves and the world we inhabit. I believe we are never more informed, fulfilled, and human than when we attend to our complex, wonderful, and sometimes troubling nature, particularly as it relates to the physical world. How can we hope to understand such mind-boggling intricacy and complexity? What tool is best suited for the job? I share the long-standing, well-established, and widely accepted feeling that the epic of evolution is the truest means we have for addressing these questions. This is not a matter of fitting one story or worldview against another. It is a matter of rethinking our priorities in the context of what we know to be true about the planet and ourselves. If our, mor- mor- excuse me, if our mor- morality includes a commitment to posterity, then we have an obligation to preserve the planet's health and richness, the very conditions that make our lives and stories possible. If so, what on earth is stopping us? And then you go on to... to, to posit a couple of theories. We'll get into that uh, as well. I wanted to talk at, at the beginning here about this idea of mystery. You, you say in, in, in some forms, mystery can be good, but in other forms, it stops us. And um, I, I, I'm guessing you probably have conversations with people who embrace mystery, uh, whether it's in its religious form or, or not. But, but you're saying mystery is, can be problematic. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I guess, I guess what, I would, what I would add to that is that in my view, at least, mystery isn't so much the challenge or the or the or the problem. It, I think, it has more to do with how we regard mystery. So, is mystery something that is unknown and unknowable, or is it instead something that may be unknown at the given moment, but may be still knowable at some future point in time? Mm. So, I think that's really where the the difference of the story that one brings to one sense of mystery comes into play, because. You know, if you have a if you have a narrative or a worldview that you know attributes mystery to something you know preternatural or outside the limits of human knowledge, then obviously that's going to have a very different effect on you as a as a person in terms of your ability to understand you know what it is that you're seeing. Whereas if you come to it from a more um, scientifically verifiable point of view, then yeah, at the moment it is mysterious, but through your efforts and through the help of other people and the vast amount of research that people have done on any given subject, you can make significant inroads in terms of understanding. And um, so it's, it's about, it's about, it's not significant in my view from, from the, on the level of the individual, but I'm sure, you know, the audience can probably appreciate how it's not just about individuals, it's about the collective stories that we tell and, and what happens anytime you get people in numbers who may or may not really have a full understanding of what's going on. And you're right that the the kinds of stories we tell, the, the kinds of narratives we tell, are, are very important. Uh huh. Yeah. In, in other words, uh, I, I guess it uh, that has an effect on on how we act and, and how we understand the world. Yeah, exactly. So if if my if my story is one that includes or acknowledges the complexity of another organism, that has sort of the effect of not only helping me to better understand an organism, but then also to understand my relationship to it and, you know, how it fits into the scheme of things. I mean, a lot, there are lots of examples of that. I mean, for instance, um, you know, there's the long-standing uh, controversy over the reintroduction of wolves, and, um, and then, of course, 
uh, other other predator species as well, with which uh, you know st- humans have historically had problems and, and which have historically been demonized. But I think you know most people would agree that, however challenging the story of the wolf is, that the science really just doesn't support our current attitudes toward it any more than uh, the science or you know the, the lies, the true lies of spiders support our animosity toward those species. So. I think it, I think it, the, the difference I'm trying to get at in the book is the difference between a story that, by its very nature, is inclusive, and, that, and that's not just with respect to other animals; it's it's with respect to other people as well. Um, and and that the difference between that and then the story that is exclusive by nature, and I think we've seen the consequences of that, you know, mm-hmm. around uh, everywhere. You have, uh, in, in, I think, in your your preface, um, you set out. Oh, it's in your acknowledgments. You set out uh, large goals here for for the, for the ideas you put forward. You, you quoting you, I have hope that humanity might someday know itself and do right by this amazing earth. And you're, I think you're referring to there to the dangers. Uh, you know, I, I assume climate change and other dangers. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean it's a tall order. I mean, you know, I mean, keep in mind that I wrote this book seven years ago, and I mean, I, I've been living it significant ever since, but, um, you know, I, I think at the time, at the time the book was written, I mean, it's historically significant because uh, we were sort of in the throes of the, we had, you know, had just invaded Iraq, and and there was just a lot of uh, conflict throughout the world, and and, uh, and at the time I was also working at Arizona State University, and, and where we had the, uh, you know, the presidential debates, and I mean, it was just a very, very... Um, troubling, interesting time to be alive, and, and the book really sort of sprang from out of that soil. So uh, that's, I think, one of the things I had in mind when I, when I talked about, you know, hopes that humanity might better know itself. And by, and you're hoping humanity can better know itself uh, through understanding the evolutionary process. Is that, that's the tool you're hoping to use? Yeah, you know, I think that, that evolution, you know, despite its um, reputation in our country uh, as as being merely a theory, as though that somehow made it any less uh, provable or uh, realistic or applicable to us, um, is I think that it's probably the, the best chance we have of uniting as a species, because even though it it acknowledges the importance of cultural differences that we have, um, it, it also tries to uh, elucidate the universal things that we share as a species. And I think that's powerful medicine uh, during a time when, you know, we are fraught with, uh, you know, religious conflict and, and wars and, and misunderstandings. And I, I just think that, you know, the, the story that we've been telling up to this point has just not been adequate to include our complexity as a, as a species and to talk about things as they really are. If you just joined us, we're talking with Utah writer Maximilian Werner. He uh, teaches writing at the University of Utah. He's author of several previous books, um, including Gravity Hill. We talked to him a, a couple months ago about that book and uh, other books. His new book is Evolved, Chronicles of a Pleistocene Mind. We're going to talk about how he, he believes we can understand ourselves better by uh, going back to the Pleistocene some, what, two and a half million years ago? Yeah. Yeah, so we'll talk about that, and, uh, and of course he brings it forward as well, and uh, there's a lot of memoir in this as well. Um, and uh, we're going to take, take a brief, uh, break soon, but uh, I wanted to 
Before we dive into some of these ideas, um, I want to address directly what I'm sure is on some of our listeners' minds, uh, and that is, can the ideas that you're putting forward, you want us to understand ourselves better through the, uh, the story, you might put it, of evolution, uh, is that in direct conflict, or can it coexist with the ineffable mystery? People who uh, believe passionately in ineffable mystery, religion, um, and, and those stories, you might you might put it that way. Can they coexist, or, or is this a conflict? Well, you know, I've never personally met anyone who professed both a, a, um, a belief in evolution and then in in the ineffable as you describe it. So I mean I can only I can only speculate about what that might entail for one. And you know, I guess the first part of my answer would be that, you know, if if it's true that that there is there is much that we can know and uh, by virtue of our you know our, our you know membership in the in, in what Darwin called the community of common descent, then in some ways I mean that's I mean the question of the ineffable, however one defines that, almost doesn't even really uh, enter the picture in my view. I mean there was I mean I you know the, the section that you quoted where I was talking about the X Files and how I, I found that somewhat alarming that you know that had a 25 million member audience at the time of its uh, airing. You know I, I made the point you know who who needs Martians when you can ponder the, you know the, the Bower bird and. And so that's kind of, I think, what I'm getting at is that, is that given the grandeur of, of not the ineffable, the ineffable, but what is what is known and what is knowable and what can be known, it's almost as if that, you know, the question of of the ineffable or God or however one defines it doesn't even really matter on some level, but that's from my perspective, and so uh, clearly. Uh, that would not be the case, I think, for someone who was coming at it from another direction or from, you know, a, as a subscriber to that point of view. Uh, you know, I had I had an interesting experience. I was I was down in uh, Southern Utah just a little while ago teaching a class down there, an environmental writing class, and and there's this very articulate young man down there, an intern uh, at, for Capitol Reef Park, and and he, he's a young Mormon man, and um, he was talking about, you know, the paradox that he saw between. The teachings of the church, and then what he was seeing down there, particularly with respect to you know geologic history, and and it was a very eloquent, beautiful moment in this in our conversation because he revealed himself and he talked about the, the different challenges that he faced, and and so I you know I listened very intently and, and interestedly, and and then I, I asked him, I, I made the point, I said, well, well, but would there be a paradox if you didn't believe what you believe with respect to the church? And he said, well, no. And that was kind of my point, is that in many ways, our stories, we complicate things for ourselves. And, and I guess one has to decide whether or not the price of doing that is worth the price of paradox, in effect, and whatever that may, may result in. So, mm-hmm. I wonder if you've had any of these conversations in your own fa- extended family. I know it, some of your extended family are, are religious, aren't they? Uh, yeah. I mean, my mother, my mother is... Uh, I guess you could describe be described as spiritual. I don't know that she would describe herself as religious, but she at one time was was part of the LDS Church, an active member. Uh, you know, and the rest of my family, I guess, not so much. I mean, these these are not. Um, I, you know, I, I guess that's a great question. I guess I haven't really ever sat down with any of my siblings and and had a discussion with them about their particular beliefs and whether or not 
they feel evolution is compatible with whatever other beliefs they may have. It's just mm-hmm. it just hasn't come up. Yeah, I, and, and the reason I, I probe this, uh, we'll get into the, you know some of that just, is in your book more more fully. The reason I probe this is is because um, you know we're we're sitting in a state where there's a lot of uh, you know uh, active religious people, uh, you know the LDS Church and then others. Um, and if you look across the broad spectrum of religions or people who are spiritual, um, some of them would embrace evolution and others would not. And so there, there might be some conflict points. There might not. Yeah. So that having been said, we'll, uh, we'll take a brief break. We're talking with Maximilian Werner, who is uh, author of a new book, Evolved, Chronicles of a Pleistocene Mind. Uh, he says that we can use evolution as a tool to understand ourselves and that the uh, it's crucial to understand ourselves and the world around us and to make connections, better connection with the world around us. Uh, we're going to come back and talk about a chapter which is called Arachnophilia. Uh, notice the end of that. That's not the usual phobia. Uh, he's studied uh, spiders in his own backyard, and he says the, the understanding of the stories we tell about spiders uh, have been harmful. We're going to be talking about uh, caves and uh, habitat theory and more on evolution more from Maximilian Werner's own life as well. Evolved Chronicles of a Pleistocene Mind, Utah writer Maximilian Werner. More after the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Free Oyster Ridge Music Festival July 26th and 28th. Just 90 minutes from Logan and Ogden in Kemmerer, Wyoming. Bands include Rose's Pawn Shop, Candy's River House, and the Coffs Brothers Court. Information at OysterRidgeMusicFestival.com. The UPR StoryCorps mobile booth recording project may have ended in St. George, but when the door to the StoryCorps booth closes, it means the door to UPR's production studio opens. And we are now listening to and editing stories that will be heard during a year-long series featuring interviews with your neighbors. Beginning in July, tune in to UPR on Thursdays and Fridays to listen to conversations recorded as part of this unique oral history project. Thanks to the City of St. George, the Riverwalk Grill, and Dixie Regional Medical Center for supporting the Utah StoryCorps project. And a special thanks to members of our UPR family for sharing, sharing stories that will last beyond our lifetime to be heard only on UPR, Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Utah writer Maximilian Werner on the program today about his new book, Evolved Chronicles of a Pleistocene Mind. How did you choose your home? What side of the bed do you sleep on? What do you have in common with a spider? Maximilian Werner takes us on a journey into the mysteries of the natural world just outside his own front door and considers how we've evolved to make certain decisions and invites us to explore our own connections to the world and lives around us. Maximilian Werner is author of several previous books, including Gravity Hill, the most recent uh, before this one, and he teaches writing at the University of Utah. You're welcome to join this conversation if you'd like at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us by email at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Maximilian Werner, I'm interested to uh, explore a little further the, the, the part of the title. It's called The uh, Pleistocene Mind. You say in this book uh, you're not going to take the usual route from... Uh, past to present. Uh, you start with today, so to speak, and go back two and a half million years to the Pleistocene era. 
Why the Pleistocene? Well, because by, by most, count, most counts, that is the, the uh, time period during which uh, Homo sapiens evolved. And so um, the, the argument of the book is that while it's possible to look back in time, you know, using methods such as the fossil record, to uh, get a sense, uh, a picture of how it is that, that we emerged and how it is that we lived, um, it, it's, in, it's just as interesting to look at uh, modern-day humans and, uh, you know, both their, their, their physical forms, but then also their, their cultural practices and, and uh, attempt to understand how we became what we became that way. So an, an example of that, um, I think an interesting example of that might be how, you know, if you look at, if you look at men and women, um, men and women, uh, through the process of natural selection, basically crafted the other. And so, and by that I mean that certain aspects of, uh, you know, masculinity or femininity or, or, you know, what it meant to be a female and a male, those things, those traits were uh, the the ones that were perpetuated by individuals and then later by the species. And so what, what it is that makes us attractive to one another, we each had an active say in terms of, uh, so to speak, in terms of how that came to be. So, um, and then, of course, another example would be, uh, you know, looking at the canine teeth in your own mouth or, you know, the, the hair on men, the absence of it on women uh, for the most part, and, and other things. So, yeah, those, those, are, those are some things that one could look at. And then you, you bring it forward as well. You examine your own life and your own surroundings. By the way, we'll, we'll get into that. I neglected to say that Maximilian Werner on Thursday evening at 7 o'clock uh, will be involved in the Evolved uh, Book Launch. That's at King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City. 7 p.m. Maximilian Werner will be there. be able to meet him. Uh, I'm sure he'll be signing copies of the book. Uh, and then on Saturday, July 6th at 2 p.m., at Dolly's Bookstore in Park City, another appearance. So King's English Bookshop, Salt Lake City, uh, Thursday night, 7 o'clock, the book launch, and then Dolly's Bookstore, Park City, Saturday, July 6th at 2 p.m. The book is Evolved, Chronicles of a Pleistocene Mind. The author is Maximilian Werner. So as I, I was saying, Maximilian Werner, you bring this forward, and uh, interestingly, you're, you start thinking about... Does this evolution have an effect on uh, whether or not I sleep on my stomach or on my back? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, one of the things to have have uh, come up during my um, consideration of how evolutionary theory might be applied just in an everyday way, and that's really, I think, the, the in, in my view, the sort of strength of the, and the the power of the book is that it's not looking at it from like a statistical or you know, a largely evidentiary basis. It's looking more, looking at it more from a personal standpoint, and and, and many of these ideas, you know, uh, could be tested and 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 have not yet been tested, but that but that I think are still plausible in their own right. And so, uh, as you suggested, one of the things I noticed was that, um, you know, pretty much every person I know, with with few exceptions, and there are exceptions, uh, tend to sleep on their side. And, you know, that's, I think, one of the interesting things about evolutionary theory in contrast to, you know, a strictly cultural interpretation of, of that behavior, because, I mean, how, how, how would culture explain that exactly? I'm not really sure. I mean, 
So I started thinking about it from a biological standpoint or an evolutionary standpoint, and uh, I began to think about it in terms of um, other uh, animals as well, including, uh, you know, different ungulates and, and horses and and so on. And, um, you know, one of the interesting things about evolution is that it makes do with what it has. And so keeping it, keeping in mind that, you know, hominids appeared fairly late on the evolutionary time frame, you know, we, you know, at one time, you know, what we, what we were made from essentially was, uh, you know, a, a, a four-legged animal. I mean, we're, you know, we're the only bipeds. And so I started thinking about, you know, four-legged animals and how they sleep, and it occurred to me that I never had never seen a single ungulate or four-legged animal sleep on, you know, on its belly or on its back or uh, so on. And so I started wondering, well, why might that be? And, and, and it occurred to me that perhaps why that is is that, uh, as is true with, with ungulates and, and horses and other animals that sleep on their sides, that that position would have put us in the best position literally, to respond to a particular danger or threat. And so keep in mind that that particular, that, that isn't necessarily so much important for us these days, I mean, given the context in which we find ourselves, but remember that these, these behaviors emerged during the Pleistocene, which would have been a time that it would have been very important for us to have, uh, you know, evolved or developed ways of preventing predation, one of which would have been I argue, lying on one side as opposed to stomach or back, which exposes one to all sorts of different dangers. This section also provides a, a very good picture. of you. Did you really, I guess you, you experimented with various uh, types of, you know, sleeping positions and then try to spring up as if, you know, to, to sort of test this out, defending yourself from attack? Yeah, I did. And, you know, in retrospect, I realized that, that uh, particular um, section might have been strengthened had I spent more time, in, in, you know, investing in it, you know, testing it more rigorously. But, you know, uh, at the time uh, I wrote that book, I was just so completely taken by the explanatory possibilities of evolutionary theory that it was almost just enough for me to get out the ideas uh, and then, you know, perhaps investigate them in more detail at a later time. But yeah, so I, you know, I went through all the motions and would try out these different, uh, you know, sleeping positions and would try to spring from a, you know, from a, from a prostrate position to a position of readiness. And, and then coupled with that, uh, I've, you know, asked pretty much every person I've ever known, uh, uh, you know, how they sleep and, or, or I'll make predictions, you know, in a room of 20 and I'll say, okay, and I'll write these numbers on the board and they don't know what they mean, of course. But then I'll ask them, okay, how many of you sleep on your side? How many of you sleep on your back? How many of you sleep on your stomach? And and pretty much without fail, uh, I will, I will, my predictions will be true. So, I guess you know that doesn't necessarily prove that that uh, that that sleeping position emerged during as part of our you know ancestral past. But I think it's a pretty high probability that that's what's going on. One of the reviewers of, of uh, your book, this is in Publishers Weekly, you, you probably are aware of this, uh, praises your book in general, but criticizes you for the, this idea of uh, sort of testing out uh, these evolutionary ideas in your own life, which, of course, uh, is a central premise of your book. I wonder how you respond to that. Well, I, uh, what, I, what I remember from that review was that 
they the, the central criticism was that, but then it was also that I mean, well, if if that's the case, and if this is this is why we lie on this this particular position, then well, how do you explain people who lay on their backs? And I, I thought that was kind of an unfortunate misunderstanding of of what I was saying because. Um, you know, there, there are always going to be exceptions to these sort of different, uh, you know, human behaviors that I recount in the book and, and probably every other that anyone else has ever studied. But so, you know, I, I don't think that the science is so much interested with the particular or the individual anomaly so much as it is in, in sort of the general. And the general, I think, by far would show that um, people tend to sleep on their sides. And so the question then becomes, well, why is that? And, you know, getting back to the, to the question of story, um, I just don't see how culture can really explain that. I mean, what, what, I don't understand the argument that could be made. Is it because, you know, people see people sleeping uh, on their sides in television commercials or movies? Or, and, and if that's the case, well, then how is it that they came to sleep in that position? So I just think there's something profoundly unsatisfying about a, you know, a strictly cultural point of view, however, um, you know, faulty it may may presently be. We're talking with Maximilian Werner. He's a writer who lives in Utah, teaches at the University of Utah, author of several previous books. Uh, his latest is out from Tory House Press. It's called Evolved Chronicles of a Pleistocene Mind, in which uh, he takes the theory of evolution uh, and, and applies it to his life and our lives today. He says that this can be a framework to help us understand ourselves and uh, help us to connect to the world around us. Uh, this is an interesting uh, passage from the book. You you say, how old am I is not such an easy question. Yeah, that's one of my favorite moments. And I think that occurs in, uh, in the context of me sort of posing the question, well, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, here in the state in particular and, and beyond, and, and even Kim and myself, we take a lot of pleasure in in, in tracing our, you know, our, our heritage, our genetic heritage, whether it's through, you know, genealogy or by looking at our children and seeing different characteristics that they have that we have, and and so the question that I that I that I pose and that I'm getting at there is that, well, um, you know, how how far does the does that paper trail go? I mean, does does our genetic lineage end at the paper trail? And and and, and assuming that. Um, you know, I guess if one had a sort of a, were biblically literal and you know subscribed to the belief that Adam and Eve were the you know the original progenitors of humankind, then you know maybe it's possible to get from from here to there. But I think evidence pretty much shows that that it actually our our lineage goes back much further than that, um, back to even pre-human history, some 3.8 billion years ago when life first emerged on this planet. So, I mean, it's a big story, that story. And, uh, I, again, getting back to the notion that the story that we tell will either undermine or contribute to our ability to be here, uh, there's a lot at stake in telling one version as opposed to the other. Several of the uh, questions that, uh, that we asked at the beginning of the program, uh, this is from the blurb from the book, um, we've talked about what side of the bed do you sleep on. Uh, another question, how did you choose your home? This gets us into, I believe, habitat theory, which you treat in one section in the book. And uh, you've, you've spent time out in the Sonoran Desert um, thinking through how, I, I believe they're called the desert archaic people, would have chosen where to live, You'd, out, out looking at, at caves and such. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about that. 
Well, you know, one of the one of the advantages that that I had in in studying in the Sonora Desert was that, in many ways, it's very comparable to savannah. And so, um, I, I guess the first point that I would make before I launch into a what I hope will be a more uh, coherent answer is that. Um, uh, oh, what was I going to say? Um, with respect to how it is that we go about choosing uh, landscapes, that's something that, um, that that I argue in the book is is something that we both exercise presently, but then it's also something that our ancestors would have exercised long ago. And so uh, what one of the things that I, I would... The point that I would make before proceeding is that people generally, when they're in these kinds of situations, whatever the situation may be, it could be a walk out in the desert, it could be, you know, having a quarrel with their spouse, it could be, you know, in any sort of social situation. I mean, we are usually just so busy being in that particular experience that we don't find the opportunities to think about how it is that we're thinking. And so one of the skills that I had to achieve um, and which I'm still working on presently, is the ability to go into, in this case, a landscape, the Sonora Desert, and, at, and be aware of basically two things simultaneously. The one was uh, what it was that I was noticing, and, and, and one of the things, of course, were, were caves. But then the second thing was also to put myself in a position where I could wonder why I was noticing those things, rather than just simply going out there and, and having the experience that I experienced. And again, this goes back to the whole business of, of the framework, right? Because if, if I have a framework that doesn't encourage me or allow me to sort of arrive at that critical uh, inquiry, then I'm going to lose a lot in terms of significance. So um, to answer your question, you know, one of the things that I, that I realized is that, First of all, um, I think I and, and humans in general are very adept in terms of noticing particular landscape features. And uh, one of the one of the uh, one of the examples I cite in the book was the, you know the late great Bob Ross, who many will recall was the, you know the landscape painter, and he had the big frizzy hair and oh, yes. talked to yeah, he means you know he's great, but in a lot of ways uh, his paintings are sort of a great uh, data set for the predictions of habitat theory in the sense that, you know, we, we notice things that would have been central to our survival or to a particular landscape's ability to support us biologically, whereas the, the, the reverse would be true in environments that would seem inhospitable or aversive to those needs. So it's kind of an interesting um, revisioning of beauty in the sense that beauty is not regarded as a cultural construct so much as it, I mean, it is that, I mean, it's perpetuated by culture and um, as many things are so much as it is a, an indication of conditions that would have been most conducive to our, um, to our survival. And of course, later reproduction. You, you have spent time uh, studying the spiders uh, in your yard, and I guess in in your house, perhaps. And uh, you said interestingly, you studying a black widow spider, you learned an important lesson that that everyday lives uh, of all kinds of creatures are not so different from one another. They're really not. Um, and unfortunately, I think 
we are getting further and further away from that truth. You know, as I said, I was just down in, in the desert for two weeks teaching this environmental writing class in, in the middle of Capitol Reef Park, and, and a lot of wonderful things happened down there with those students. But one of the things that we all agreed upon was how ultimately distracting uh, our civilization has become. And so I think one of the consequences or one of the expressions of that is our inability to notice the organisms with which we share our yard. And then, of course, there's been all sorts of, you know, research to that effect about the, the absence of unstructured time in nature and the consequences that that has for child development and so on and so forth. And um, But, yeah, the book is really sort of a, a championing of returning to what we could reasonably be described as an earlier awareness that, you know, our lives are enriched by attending to the small lives with which uh, you know, we, we share our yards, and in this case, the spider and and uh, a host of many others. We're going to take a break, and uh, we're talking with uh, Maximilian Werner, who is a writer in Utah, teaches writing at the University of Utah. His current book is Evolved, Chronicles of a Pleistocene Mind, published by Tory House Press. A couple of events that uh, you're invited to involving Maximilian Werner, the first of which is Thursday evening of this week, Thursday evening, 7 p.m., the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City. That's the book launch. Then on July 6th, that's a Saturday at 2 p.m., Park City Dolly's Bookstore. There'll be a book signing there. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, what um, evolution, examining our nature through uh, the eyes of evolution, can tell us about Fighting and Killing, some very interesting passages in the book on these subjects, back after the break. Waste not. Wash your pets outdoors in an area of your lawn that needs water. Another way to conserve water, use a broom instead of a hose to clean sidewalks and driveways. Waste Not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash publicworks. Is the NSA wiretapping story really new? Oh, sure, the whistleblower's all over the news, but the story first broke more than seven years ago. I'm Jim Fleming. Next time, to the best of our knowledge, we're following Edward Snowden's every move. But do we really understand what this means for privacy? It's to the best of our knowledge. From PRI, Public Radio International. Sunday mornings at 9 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest for the hour today is writer Maximilian Werner. His new book out from Tory House Press is Evolved, Chronicles of a Pleistocene Mind. And he says that we can look to evolutionary theory as a tool to get to know ourselves better. And he says getting to know ourselves is critical. How did you choose your home? What side of the bed do you sleep on? What do you have in common with a spider? We've been talking about some of these questions, uh, and he considers how we've evolved to make certain decisions and invites us to explore our own connections to the world and lives around us. A couple of events in, involving Maximilian Werner. This Thursday, in the evening, 7 o'clock, it's the book launch at King's English Bookshop, Salt Lake City. And then on Saturday, July 6, 2 p.m., at Dolly's Bookstore uh, in Park City, there's a book signing there. I'd like to get into uh, some very serious questions of uh, fighting and protection and killing. 
some of the most moving passages in the book. I wonder, uh, perhaps, if you could uh, read for us again, uh, Maximilian Werner, page 182. Um, and uh, this has to do with a fight. Uh, and this is a, uh, a, a boy you knew in, uh, I think this was high school at this point, in Sandy, Utah. Eddie Pliskin. Uh, and before you, uh, if you read this, I'll have you read to the middle of the page and then the next paragraph over the top of the page, uh, the, the passage saying Eddie didn't say a word. First, maybe you could uh, tell us about Eddie. Well, Eddie was actually um, a, a young man whom I, I didn't know very well, but you certainly couldn't miss him. He was, uh, you know, this was um, late 70s, early 80s, Sandy, Utah, at Eastmont Middle School, a school which still stands. Uh, and Eddie was a young African-American male, and um, at that time and as at present, there were not very many African-Americans in the state, and that was one of the things that made him noticeable. But the other thing that made him noticeable from, from my perspective and from the perspective of many of my friends it was his size, and he was a massive young man and easily dwarfed, uh, you know, the largest of uh, the, the, the boys in, in, my, in my grade, and so... Yeah, the, the section that you've pointed out is a section where uh, we had gone, just gotten into ninth grade at Alta High School, and uh, I witnessed a fight between him and a notorious bully. So is that where you want me to pick uh, up then? Is, uh, and he, he didn't say a word? Yes. Okay, yeah. So uh, I guess I should give a little bit more context. Uh, Eddie, we were, it was at lunch, it was in the morning, and um, I, school hadn't yet started, and we were in the lunchroom, and, and the way the lunchroom was designed, it was like a large stage, and uh, and uh, there's this bully who, for whatever reason, called out Eddie, and and uh, so this is what happened afterward. Eddie didn't say a word. He placed his books in a neat pile on the ground and assumed the stance of a boxer. The other kid smiled nervously and said something I couldn't make out. Eddie dipped and pumped and wound as if his body were a great generator. I'm pretty sure it was at this moment that the other kid realized he was in a world of trouble, and there was no turning back. The kid put up and made small circles with his fists and went at Eddie. Eddie bent his knees and rocked slightly to the left and avoided the kid's first punch. The kid threw a wild left punch. Eddie ducked the blow, and as he stood, his right fist sprang from his body and landed squarely on the kid's jaw, followed by a left upper hook. After the first punch, the kid was already on his way to the floor, so Eddie's second punch was, really wasn't necessary. Unfortunately for the kid, the one-two punch doesn't discriminate. It's a package deal. You buy one punch, you, you pay for the second punch, whether you want it or not. I doubt anyone who witnessed that fight had ever seen anything like it. At that age, control and precision and when fighting only happened in the movies. But Eddie was a technician. I suspect that his father, knowing Eddie would face more than his share of aggression, saw it as his responsibility to teach his son to defend himself. In any event, that other kid didn't have a chance. Perhaps on some level, Eddie saw the fight as an opportunity to get out the word that he wasn't going to tolerate any disrespect. It worked. I don't recall ever hearing anyone challenging him again. The fight inspired awe and admiration in me and in my friends, who from then on referred to Eddie as Eddie the Pummeler Pliskin. Yeah, that would have had an effect, I'm sure, on the, on the minds of, uh, of the young men. Uh, and, and you go on to, to say that uh, that was a part of, of your group growing up. It's a part of how you sort of settled disputes and, I don't know, set pecking order and such. You, you called it dancing. The boys would invite others to dance with them. Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I, I hasten to say that 
that that sort of thing continues. Uh, I, I mean, I I uh, I re- I'm reluctant to say that 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 sort of thing happens today. I guess I wish that it didn't happen mm. so much today, but but yeah, I'm guessing that it probably does, uh, and with pretty you know significant regularity. And um, you know, I, I think one of the one of the things I found interesting about that that moment in the book, um, you know, looking back on it was was the part about the infighting that, that we would do. Uh, you know, there was that section in the book where I talked about how, you know, often many days after school we would, you know, everything would be fine on the bus ride home, and then, you know, at the very end of the bus ride, someone in our group would call out the other, and then we'd go over to my friend Deej's house, and there, there a fight would ensue. And, and as I pointed out in the book, you know, these fights never got very serious, except for on one occasion uh, when one of my friends kicked the other friend in the in the testicles. But, uh, you know, for the most part, they, they kind of gave us an opportunity to exercise skills, which I argued would be important for maintaining in the event of a real conflict with a real challenger from outside the group. So. And, uh, of course, Eddie could walk alone <laughs> because he yeah. was, you know, he, he had this respect. He was so big and he'd proven himself. But others uh, had to had to go in groups. Protect yourself. Yeah. Yeah, and... and uh, you know, so what it ends up being in, in our case is that I, I sort of charted the, um, the the network of boys that I knew growing up in you know the middle '80s uh, all the way into the early '90s in in Sandy, Utah, and I, it occurred to me that there was probably a network. I belonged to a network of you know 100 boys or so, and, and it was just sort of fascinating to me how. Um, you know, you would have the, the center group or the main group, which, you know, consisted of me and, and my immediate friends and then my brother and his immediate friends. And then from there, there would be this sort of, uh, you know, um, you know, outreaching or, you know, spreading of uh, influence among other boys. And so, uh, you know, it was it was just sort of an interesting thing to notice how how it is that that, um, that young men at that time uh, gained uh, status. Mm. And and so going back to you know the Pleistocene mind and, and, and connecting this up with evolutionary theory, the, these are behaviors that have uh, been brought forward. And, and and if so, how do it, is it through education, through teaching? You know, hopefully as we get to, to be adults, we we don't behave in this way. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, you know, there are, there are a lot of ways in which uh, people every day of their lives may resist their, you know, genetic predispositions. Um, and, and it's also true that one of the great things that we've inherited is our sociality as a species. Um, but I don't know that, I don't, I don't know that, you know, in the case of fighting or rock throwing or stick fighting or fort building or, you know, imaginary friends or playing with dolls or, you know, you know, social games that would allow a greater familiarity with the opposite gender. Um, I don't know that these things are necessarily taught so much as they are reaffirmed by uh, various cultural practices. Mm. So basically my argument in the book is that this tendency that we had as boys to to exercise our skills of hunting and stalking and, you know, and hide-and-seek and fort-building and these sorts of things these sorts of things are um, remnants from our, an earlier time in our past um, that, you know, in, in, in some environments still remain very relevant, although, you know, I think, I think the, how, how relevant it, it has become less apparent in, in the current environment, even though, you know, my wife, for instance, was quick to point out that when she was working on her doing graduate school, she 
you know, her kid, she, she's a, an MSW, and she would work with small children, and these children would play these games, you know, and they were hide-and-seek games. They had a bad guy, and they had a good guy. They had a, you know, a foe and, uh, and so on. So, um, you know, I, I, think it's, I think it's pretty clear, and, and most people, uh, in, in my experience, would admit to, um, you know, engaging in, in some form of, these, of this play. Not necessarily because it was taught them, but uh, because they maybe had a predisposition to do so. We're coming down to the end of the program. I definitely wanted to get this passage in. I wonder if you'd read us one more passage. This is page 210. Okay. Uh, Near the end of the book. Gets us into some interesting issues about killing. Um, Oh, yeah. uh, You know, killing other forms of life and, and frankly, killing each other. Um, And uh, this, uh, maybe just that first paragraph under Denouement. Okay. Um, I've seen a boy about a hummingbird. A hummingbird. Just that, that paragraph. Okay. Uh, the section begins, Denouement. I've seen a boy shoot a hummingbird point blank as it zipped from a feeder. I could not look at him for a long time after that, and never in the same way. I heard from a friend that he now holds a Ph.D. in fishery biology. Though that seems contradictory, it is a familiar story. I, too, changed from an indiscriminate killer of the wild to a killer with an environmental ethic. Like millions of children who've preceded me, one of the ways I learned the importance of life was by taking it. I know how bad hunting and killing can feel, and how good. Understanding how I can have such different feelings about the same event has been crucial to my own sense of well-being. But now I think about how that knowledge might be useful to my son as he grows up. I need to start telling the truth about my life so I'll be prepared when Wilder starts asking questions and expressing his own tendency to hunt and, perhaps, to kill. I will not encourage him to fear his nature. Instead, I'll tell him stories that teach him to embrace, celebrate, and, when necessary, temper it. So there's some interesting lines uh, in that passage. You, you, we learn the importance of life by taking it, often that, that happens with, with children. And you, you're, you're going to help your son Wilder put this in context, temper this, this impulse through stories, you say. Yes. Yes, exactly. And, um, you know, I, I think that, and, and just for the record, uh, my daughter Greer was not born at the time, and so I would have included her in this as well, I think, had she been. But uh, um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, at some point, Wilder is going to start dealing with many of the issues that, or all of the issues that, you know, ancestral children face, including his tendency to kill and uh, to hunt, you know, assuming that that is the kind of activity that I introduce him to. And so what I'm getting at there is trying to find a constructive way to help him deal with those impulses in, in, a, in, a, in a positive way rather than teaching him to, you know, to shun them or to be ashamed of them or embarrassed of them or uh, to give them free reign. So, I mean, it, it takes work. It takes work to, to think beyond the limitations of our own perspective, but uh, really the argument of the book is that there, there's probably no better tool for that than, than evolutionary theory. And we'll have to end the discussion there. Of course, much else. You'll have to read the book. There's a couple of opportunities to meet the author, Maximilian Werner. First is this Thursday evening, 7 o'clock, the Evolved Book Launch. That's at the King's English Bookshop, Salt Lake City. And then on Saturday, July 6th at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, Park City Dolly's Bookstore. Uh, and the book is Evolved, Chronicles of a Pleistocene Mind. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Maximilian Werner. Thank you much. Thank you, Tom. 
And uh, tomorrow on the program, we're going to revisit a conversation with Ananda Rose, her book, Showdown in the Sonoran Desert, Religion, Law, and the Immigration Controversy. Uh, Thanks for listening. Utah writer Gina Wickwar. I am one of the last holdouts. I continue to pay my bills by check. So far, I've been able to withstand every blandishment to pay my bills electronically that is offered by the gas, electric, telephone, and credit card companies, as well as numerous charitable organizations. Hoping to shame me into compliance, they beseech me to save millions of trees, as well as time and postage. I'm all for saving trees, mind you, but I also wish to save the United States Postal Service, and I'm doing my darndest to keep in business. I figure that with all my bill paying and mailing of birthday and Christmas cards, I am doing a patriotic duty to preserve that glorious old institution begun by Benjamin Franklin. Not so most of my friends. They shake their heads when I tell them I continue to pay bills the old-fashioned way by check. That's so yesterday, they tell me. But this electronic mailing goes far beyond bills, too. Last Christmas, at least half of the so-called cards we received were holiday letters sent via email. Thank you notes are now being emailed, as are party invitations, tax returns, baby and wedding announcements, and overdue book notices. Actually, I view even check writing as somewhat novel. My mother and father never had a checkbook until they retired in their late 50s. We were a military family, so they figured that it was too much of a hassle to keep opening and closing checking accounts when we were coming and going every two years. As a result, the 30-plus years they paid their bills by money order or cash. My first experience writing checks occurred when I was married at 19. I've been at it now for 50 years and having perfected it, will be darned if I'm going to give it up for this newfangled electronic deposit and withdrawal system. That's probably not long for this world either. In a few more years, we'll be able just to envision paying a bill, and it will happen by telepathy. I have to admit, when that time comes, even I won't be able to save the U.S. Post Office. This is Gina Wickwar. Hey, did you hear car talk last week? Well, that's what I thought. breaks are like that. I never thought of it until this very moment. I never thought of much until... No. (laughs) I don't usually think of anything until I hear myself say it. And then I say, you know, that's bull. (laughs) For more well-reasoned car advice, join us this week for Car Talk. Saturday mornings at 10 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio. KUSR HD1, 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1, 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1, 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1, 88.7 Moab, and KUSUFM HD1, 91.5 Logan. The time is now 10 o'clock.